As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. And welcome to another unbelievable classic replay. I'm Ruth Jackson, and this week we're delving back into the archives to bring you a discussion on the question How should humans live in an inhuman world? That's our topic on Unbelievable today. I'm joined by Alan Noble and Kelly Capick. Let's jump in on today's discussion. We do live in an increasingly technologically connected world, and it's enabled the acceleration of human productivity but has also brought new pressures of being able to compare our identity, our success with everybody else. Well, Alan Noble is Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's Editor-in-Chief of Christ and Pop Culture and the author of the new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. My other guest today is Kelly Capick. He's Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and the author of a very soon-to-be-released book, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. You can pre-order it now. Uh, Both these books bring a Christian perspective to the pressures of living as humans in a world that we weren't necessarily designed to live in. So uh, it's great to have you both, Alan and Kelly, joining me on the show today. Um, Thanks let's for having start us. With you. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. And, and I do anticipate this won't be a kind of a ding dong, you know, a slug fest or anything. I, I, I ex- I'm, I'm expecting, you know, very much a sort of a, a dialogue where we explore the ideas. Uh, and I've loved both of your books. Re- really good books. Very, very timely, prescient books for our culture today. Uh, let's start with you, Alan. T- tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what led you to write you are not your own. So I'm uh, interested in a lot of the questions that are challenging our culture, and I've been following along for many years with the sort of debates that happen between evangelicals and the secular world and uh, popular culture. And it seemed to me that at a certain point, I, you know, I think we recited the Heidelberg Catechism's first question and answer in church one Sunday. And so it was sort of echoing in my mind. And as I was thinking about the major issues that were plugging us, so there were debates about, you know, religious liberty, about abortion, about euthanasia, about identity, all these sorts of things, right? It struck me, uh, you know, a lot of these center around this question of belonging. At their core, they center uh, on this question of to whom do we belong? Do we fundamentally belong to ourselves? Because if that's true, there are certain implications, and that changes the the nature of our debate. Um, So that was kind of going on in the sort of macro level, right? And uh, in my personal life, uh, my uh, wife was staying home from – she was not working at the time. She was raising our our three kids, and – 
I was experiencing in both in, through my wife, but also through in my myself, and also through my friends and students, this growing feeling that the normal way we do life is basically inhuman. That it, it's a basic way. So, for example, raising children one of the most human things you can do, right? If we <laughs> if you don't have kids, there's no human race. So it's essentially human. But as I was watching the way we raised our kids and, and what was normal in the culture, it struck me, wow, it's, it's really uh, hard to raise your children alone. But that's how we live. We live separated in all these houses far away from each other. And then we expect things to go well. Um, so th- that sort of thing was, was troubling me at home. I was watching my students who were raised Christians overwhelmed with a kind of existential crisis, especially their senior year, this feeling that they have to choose the right person to marry or the right career. And if they don't, then the project of their life is derailed and they come to they come to nothing. Um, and then just even my day-to-day interactions as I go to the supermarket, um, the, recognizing that uh, I no longer interact with cashiers as neighbors, but instead as sort of avatars of, of corporations. Mm-hmm. And just thinking, well, that's normal. That's normal for all of us. But isn't that just basically inhuman, right? I'm no longer seeing this person as a human being. So um, at some point, I connect these two ideas. And it struck me that, well, maybe there's a relationship. Maybe if we assume that our anthropology, our basic human nature, is that we belong to ourselves, and we structure a society around that assumption, maybe it leads to these inhuman consequences. Hmm. How, how did that connect with the Heidelberg Catechism that you said sort of was was influential uh, in in the uh, genesis of this book? Yeah, I, I just really yeah, I didn't I didn't give the Heidelberg Catechism, did I? Yeah. So the first question and answer is, um, what is your only comfort and in life in life and in death? Uh, and that's uh, that you are not your own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, that's the short version of it. Um, for me, it's it's incredibly fascinating that that's the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, because the assumption there is that when you're thinking about understanding the Christian faith, the first thing that you need answered is, where do you get comfort? Which resonates with me. I mean, that, that feels like a, a, a very real uh, – uh, thing that actually I, I do need that question answered. Um, where do we get comfort? Because it assumes that life is filled with discomfort. Mm, absolutely. Yes. That uh, there is that kind of, yeah, absolute assumption in the Heidelberg catechism that you are not necessarily going to be happy as a Christian necessarily. Mm. Um, so what is our comfort, uh, when the, the difficulties come? Um, we'll, we'll return to the book in a moment. Kelly, I brought you on because when I received the advanced copy of your own book, I thought, wow, there are so many touch points here with Alan's book, which I'd, I'd read over the summer. And I'd, I mean, sort of between Alan and myself, we'd been talking about, oh, who, who could we bring on with you, Alan? And, and then your book arrived. I thought, ah, this, this feels like the right match. So um, thank, thank you for writing your own human. Again, what, tell us a little bit firstly about yourself and, and, then, and then, yeah, your, what, what led to you writing your particular book? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's a great match. It's it's fun to be on this. Uh, and Alan and I hadn't talked about it uh, in terms of writing these books. Uh, it was a surprise for me to see Alan's come out and think that's really great. And it was fun to just have a chance to read through his book and realize we have a lot of the same concerns, but we're doing different things. So they really do mm-hmm. complement one another. Um, yeah, the, the short version of my story that relates to the book would probably be that... Um, I've been wrestling with the idea of, well, let me start with this question. (laughs) 
when you put your head, at least when I put my head on the pillow at night, how often do I feel like, man, I just crushed that day? <laughs> you know, I did great. I, I did everything I wanted to do. I feel great about the day. And the reality is it's very rare. And this has always been a challenge yeah. for me, um, a challenge for my wife. We're pretty driven people. So I've been very interested in what it means to be human for a long time. And part of that, while I was living, while we lived overseas and I did my PhD on a 17th century figure named John Owen, a lot of my interest was in his view of the humanity of Jesus. Hmm. And exploring the humanity of Jesus is interesting to me because it helps me understand our humanity. Um, and then I studied under a, a theologian there named Colin Gutton. And one of the concerns I started to have as an American evangelical is... I just don't think we have much of a doctrine of creation because when we when, and everyone says, no, 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 we talk about creation. I say, yeah, but what do we talk about? We talk about how old the earth is and when did God make it? That's kind of the concern. <laughs> and those are not the main. I mean, those you can have those discussions, but they're like eight and nine. And mm. in terms of pastoral importance and all this kind of thing. So I've been very interested in this. And then to add to that. um, a much longer discussion, but in 2008, my wife had cancer and we uh, went through that. And then um, she was declared cancer free in 2009. And then starting in 2010, um, she developed chronic pain. And so every day is filled with, with pain and fatigue. And that remains to this day. And so out of God's providence, he provided a grant and I ended up uh, for, for the John Templeton Foundation. I wrote a book called um, Embodied Hope, which is a reflection on pain and suffering. All of that to say, once I got through that book, which is really about lament and struggle, I became convinced that this idea of being a creature and the good of being a creature, I was finally ready to think through and write about. Because I think we struggle not just with lament, but the good of our, of our need for one another, of our limits. Um, and the last thing I'll just say is I've become convinced this isn't a time management problem. It's a mm. theological problem. Hmm. And I think Christians really confuse finitude and sin. We feel guilty for many things we shouldn't feel guilty about. And so I'm very interested in exploring those mm. ideas. It, it, I, I mean, I, I, I thought that theme resonated in both of your books that, you know, a lot of people approach this as I just need to manage my time more, right. be more efficient, you know, uh, and, and then my life will be what it's supposed to be. Um, and, and that is is chasing a dream which never actually materializes for, for most people, at least. Um, what, what ways then do you identify, Alan? And you really spend the first half of the book kind of <laughs> diagnosing the problem hmm. before even attempting to, to suggest any solutions. Um, what, what are the kind of things that you've you, you highlight as the the ways in which modern culture forces us into into way we were never meant to live in in many ways yeah so uh one of them i think maybe the easiest to see today is has to do with identity so um if we are our own then that means that we are uh, our identities are always fluid really everyone's identity feels fluid they feel unstable uncertain tenuous and that's not a healthy way to live it fills you with anxiety and and a sense of inadequacy as kelly was saying you know that that experience of lying down on the pillow 
can you feel a sense of peace? Well, uh, if no, then they're probably you're experiencing a sense of inadequacy. I, I failed to do something. I failed to measure up. And so often that is tied to a sense of identity. And of course, again, if, if our lives are our sole responsibilities, it kind of makes sense, actually. Um, you, you probably should feel overwhelmed with this because really only you can work on this and really only you can improve yourself. And so... Uh, I think a lot of uh, people, if not most people, to some extent in the West, experience this anxiety of identity. In the book, I talk about the difference between the spiritual crisis that Dante has in the middle of his life um, in the Divine Comedy. He wakes up one day and he's in the woods, these dark woods, and he's lost. And that sounds like a midlife crisis because it's midway through his life, but it's not. He actually knows exactly who Dante is. The problem is he he's off the path of righteousness and he has to see his sin and repent and turn toward God. And so it's a spiritual crisis. But today, I think most of us experience a perpetual identity crisis. Who am I? What does it mean to be an Alan Noble? Um, and that weighs on us. That weighs on us. And uh, I, I think it's notable that uh, this is also profitable for a lot of people, right? So if I'm constantly anxious about who I am, instead of being able to say, this is who I am, now I can act in this world. If I'm constantly anxious, am I, do I know who I am? Do other people know who I am? Because we always need a witness. Somebody has to see us and affirm our identity. Um, well, then I'm probably going to want to spend some money to get some assurance. And uh, so I think it's not a coincidence that 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 uh, perpetual identity crisis, a kind of liquid existence, means that we spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to feel solid and certain and sure. Um, so that one, I think, I, I think is probably one of the most mm. salient mm. for us. Yeah. Do, do, do you recognize a lot of that, Kelly, from your own experience and what you write about? Yeah, I do think identity is very tricky. Um, basically, we're we're told culturally, philosophically, and otherwise that you need to know yourself, and the way you need to know yourself is to look within yourself. People don't even realize that's just a modern phenomena. Throughout the history of the world and throughout much of the world to this day, the way you know yourself is by looking at social relations, your connections. I'm from this people, this tribe, this land, etc., and. W those of us in the West, no, 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 all of that feels like a betrayal. You have to look within. Well, <laughs> looking within is brings turbulence, brings uncertainty. You're, you know, uh, I draw pretty heavily from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, when he's in prison, has this great poem about who I am. And he realizes, you know, the guards, everyone thinks I'm this noble person, and I am panicked inside. So am I the panicked person, or am I the person they think I am, Right. So that's one form of identity crisis. And you also have the Christian, like, am I a saint or am I a sinner? <laughs> right? Those kind of things. So I do think it's a big issue. And, and one of the things that probably um, drives Alan and I both that we have the unique opportunity to do is we teach college students. Uh -huh. And this is just such a major, this is the, the truth is all of us swim in this water, yeah. but mm -hmm. it's very clear for them. And and they are suffocating by it, and yeah. and they're they are they feel the weight of the world, and so I, I think for us it's a it's a huge pastoral concern. But once you start to see it in college students, you start to see it in the forty and the fifty and the sixty year olds too. It's everywhere. That's right. I, I mean, Alan, you you pick this up yourself in your book that that you know you you see this in the 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 tyranny almost of having to come up with your identity and, and kind of perform, outperform, mm -hmm. you know, the rest yeah. of the, your peers. Um, I mean, has that, I mean, arguably 
that time frame, you know, student life, etc., has always been a time of self-discovery and, and, mm-hmm. and everything, you know, when we're trying to work out who we are and our identity. I mean, is it significantly worse in today's culture? And why is that if, if that is the case? Yeah, so that's always a tr- the historical question is always a tricky one because it's uh, how do, how does one measure right how uh, how much anxiety was in the past? So, in in the book and actually in my classes, I I teach Sylvia Plath uh, the Bell Jar, which is about a college student who has, uh, in my opinion, the same fundamental existential crises that 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 my students have. And so we're talking in the 1960s uh, in America, 1950s and 60s, uh, people were experiencing uh, these basic same questions and fears. Am I good enough? Is there a path for me? Uh, How do I know when I have been affirmed and know who I am? Uh, What if I choose the wrong path? These sorts of things. Uh, But what Sylvia Plath's character doesn't have to deal with is the pervasiveness of, of social media. And um, I mean, she she deals with mass market, uh, you know, television and these sorts of things. But but it's really just it's or film, but it's not a big deal. It's not really. Mm-hmm. Whereas for our students, you know, Justin, you mentioned that that sense of, you know, hinted that sense of competition. And that's one of the things that escalates all of this is that we're hyper aware of what everybody else is doing. So, okay, if if I have to, if I feel this moral and existential obligation to sort of uh, raise myself up as an identity, make something really meaningful and beautiful out of me, um, but I'm hyper aware that everyone else is doing the exact same thing and I'm competing for the same resources, the same time, the same opportunities, the same attention, the same love, affection, all those sorts of things, all of a sudden life is this tremendous competition. And uh, when you look around, there are a lot of people who are much better than you. There are a lot of them, and they are here to announce it too. Um, and mm-hmm. so that—that's not something that that Americans in the nineteen, or you know, Westerners in the fifties and sixties had to deal with. It just was not that pervasive. Um, so it has increased. Yeah, yeah, and and to, to some extent. Do you see that kind of anxiety? I mean, we, we, we frequently hear, don't we, about a mental health crisis, the increasing rates of anxiety, even sadly, um, suicide and depression um, uh, in our culture. Kelly, do you, do you recognize that as well? And do you kind of have the similar diagnosis to Alan, this 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 incessant competition, if you like, and the fact that we'll never actually yeah. be the best, even though we're constantly told to be the best, you know? Yeah, I, I and it's interesting even to to make it not like picking on the quote unquote world, but to see this is a problem within the church, right? So mm-hmm. we have children who are raised because we've all been told we need to keep their self esteem up. So when they're little, we say like, "You're the best soccer player. You're the best at piano, or you're gonna do this." And the reality is, they're probably not that good, or th- maybe they're good, <laughs> but they're not great, you know. <laughs> and, and so. Part of the the terribleness of being a college professor these days is people come and discover they're not the best, they're not the brightest, they're not the most beautiful, and it's crushing, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so so it it is a big issue uh, for us to try and work through. You actually do have gifts that God has given. But all of us have these limits. All of us are creatures. None of us were made to be. You know, when we ask anyone, "Do you think you're God?" None of us go, "Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm divine." None of us say that. But we really do live like we should be able to have all the knowledge, all the skills, all the abilities. And so, mm-hmm. as that really silly thought starts to work out in our lives, 
it creates a crisis because we now internally and externally expect it to be otherwise. And and the one solution we give everyone is if you just try harder, you can. And the most painful thing is when they realize I can't try any harder or I've tried really hard. There's a new book out, you know, CNN anchor. She tried really hard her whole life. And by her 30s, she utterly burned out physically, mentally, emotionally. Mm. And that happens mm. all over the place. You just mm. we can't do it. I mean, you, you have this interesting analysis, Alan, of the what you call the affirming and mm. those who choose resignation. Just explain what that is. Yeah, so I was trying to think through, really, in part, my own students, their reactions to this, to, to exactly what Kelly described, right? As as you as they face this fact, okay, um, I'm not the best. So uh, some students I've noticed are are what I call affirming, and what what I mean by that is that they they do think if I try harder, they do believe that that idea that actually the system fundamentally works, the meritocracy works. Uh, there is a technique, a method, a, an ability for me to improve myself incrementally mentally so that I do rise to the top. And if I just put my head down and focus and stop being, you know, you know, pitying myself, I can, I can achieve this. Um, and then I think the resigned are, are those who, who are confronted with that reality. I'm not the best. Um, I can't actually really compete with among, the, among the best. And they withdraw. They say, the game is rigged. You've been telling me my whole life that I'm good enough, you know, that I'm great at all these things. And you've been saying that, that, that greatness that my life, making my life uh, beautiful and powerful and remarkable is what it means to live a good life. And now I can't do it. So if that's the reality, I need something else. I, I mean, I'm tapping out. I'm not going to play this game anymore. So maybe I will literally play games or or do something else. And one remarkable thing about living in the contemporary West is that you don't actually need a lot of wealth in order to be constantly distracted with high quality entertainment. So if you want, like historically, if you wanted to be, um, uh, you know, resigned, if you want to check out, you still have to work really hard to survive. It's, it's not to the same extent today. And, um, so and and I, I do want to say that I don't think there are you know just some people uh, uh, you know born one way or the other. Actually, I think most of us you know sort of oscillate between affirmation and yeah. resignation. Um, mm. I know I have I, in my life. I, when I when I read that segment in your book, actually, Alan, it, I then found an article that just seemed to exemplify this resignation, which which was an article essentially about. Um, a lot of adult men basically checking out of real life and just devoting their lives to video gaming and and this becoming a genuine choice for them because it's too difficult to to get that job or reach those heights or do the things that you know qualify as adulting in life and so and the rewards are greater because the games have become so good and so lifelike and you've got the community there and, and everything else and it's it's almost like there literally is an appeal in simply entering a different reality and kind of checking out of the the kind of the physical one that we were kind of bought into um and i don't know what, what you think about that kelly the, the, do you is is that kind of you know we, is that what we're seeing with you know facebook's metaverse they want to kind of us all to live in the sort of 3d i mean yeah. th this is kind of these ultimate questions about are we meant to be embodied are you know are we happy to embrace our finitude or are we actually saying no we really want to transcend that. We want to yeah. live lives where we're unencumbered by by kind of you know the the, the normal everyday in that sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I you know I spend two of my ten chapters on physicality and why they matter, right? And, and um, 
like many things, we kind of live in this age where, like right now, it seems like we're all about bodies and that we care about physicality and we want you to embrace your body. <clears throat> but the reality is, Christian and non-Christian, there's all kinds of reasons and data to say that's not true. <laughs> we're very nervous about our bodies. We're very uncomfortable with our bodies and our physicality. So part of what that took me to is thinking through the ancient church. And in particular, there's a book by Tertullian I use as an example of this called On the Flesh of Christ. Hmm. And he just explores against... Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. What were called the Gnostics, who were very uncomfortable with our physicality. They love spirituality, but were very nervous about materiality. And what I found interesting about Tertullian is he really focuses on, like, the earthiness of Jesus. Like, the virgin birth that he, he starts talking about after birth. And you're like, that, why are you talking about that? That doesn't sound very <laughs> pious. But his whole point is, if you are flinching at the full humanity of Jesus, you don't understand the extent of God's grace. And it also then, he makes an amazing connection. You can't actually love people. You say you love people, but real people are fleshly, right? Mm -hmm. They're physical. And um, so I, I think, getting back to what you were asking, I think part of the temptation right now is loving is very hard and non-material, non-physical worlds, it's easy to get approximations of what we think mm -hmm. of as love without the confusion. You know, I can mm -hmm. make everyone's life easy. Just don't love anybody, right? <laughs> don't love a puppy because loving something or someone brings requirements on you. It takes your time. It, 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 it enters into mutuality. And so all of these contemporary forms of substitution require very little from you, but then also give very little in, in the deepest sense of the term. So, you know, but um, in my opinion, uh, I really think that the six hour binges on Netflix and, uh, you know, 10 hours on the ga gaming, I really, and I think all three of us kind of see it this way. I really think those are signs of the problem. They're not the problem itself. Right. That there are these, and you know, Alan's trying to point at this too. There, there are these deeper historical, contemporary cultural forces, and so we can feel the inhumanity of it. And so we're turning to these things. And often, as Christians, we've blamed the internet. We've blamed, yeah. you know, all. And I just want to say, well, those can be problems, but we need to go much deeper than that. 
Can I say amen? Yeah, this uh, this is one thing that I, I do think motivated my book is that ju- just seeing how often, um, particularly younger people who who end up checking out in these various ways, who end up feeling resigned, are uh, belittled and attacked. And and I'm not saying that you know playing ten hours of video games is good, but I, but but I want what I do want to say is you know y- you taught them to think this way. You taught them to believe that they have to make their lives something meaningful. And when they realized they were not good enough to do it. It, they looked at themselves and they said, well, uh, I am my own. I'm responsible for making a life that is interesting and exciting and pleasurable. I can get all of those things virtually. So why don't I do that? And that's actually really rational if you believe that you are fundamentally your own. The difference is that those things are socially unacceptable in, in most parts of society, whereas there are other ways of living for yourself, of being your own, that are are quite praised. So the entrepreneur who sacrifices family and friends and morality or whatever to create this business that you know is worth a lot of money, we say, well, that you know, productive member of society, that's good. I, I want to say, you know what? You know, both of them can fundamentally be driven by the same a disordered understanding of what it means to be human. And both of them can be toxic in different ways. As Kelly mentioned, you know, that CNN report, you know, you, the burnout, right? Uh, why? Because it's not human. It's not the way we're supposed to live. So, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, you know, on, on the one hand, I want to say, you know, these symptoms are uh, troubling. And, and, and when I have students, when I know people who are who are resigned in these ways through various sort of addictions, because I do think addiction is, is a key here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am concerned for them and, and their lives. But but I what I don't want to do is make them a target. Sure. We're going to go to a quick break and come back. We've talked a lot about the, some of the problems that exist. Maybe we can, we can have a look at some of the, the possible solutions, uh, though these are not easy problems in any way to to address um it feels almost like a tidal wave that you're swimming against sometimes doesn't it in the culture but um we'll we'll come back uh we talk about how should humans live in an inhuman world that's our topic on unbelievable today i'm joined by alan noble and kelly capick Welcome back to the show. How should we live in an inhuman world is our subject on Unbelievable today. Really pleased to be joined by Alan Noble, author of the new book, You Are Not Your Own, and Kelly Capick, author of another new book, You're Only Human. I just thought these books were so complimentary that I'd get both guests on today to talk about the, the issues involved. And, um, and we've talked a lot about the, you know, the problems, and there are many more that we could have listed besides uh, the challenges to living um, healthy you know, grounded lives in, in a society that so often pushes us in directions we weren't really made to, to live. Um, so obviously the answer to all of these problems is Jesus. That's always the right answer. But uh, it's, it's often a bit more complicated in terms of, of how you actually uh, parse that out. Um, I mean, you've already said, Kelly, that sometimes the church is just as much to blame in the kind of uh, the way it frames things. Um, Talk talk to us a little bit about that, because the problem is that very often the most popular preachers are exactly the you can get your life together. You can, you know, follow these five easy steps and you'll crush your your day. You know, they they (laughs) kind of, you know, they turn into motivational coaches or something. Um, And and I'm not sure that's ultimately what's going to help people, is it? Yeah. Baptized time management. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I'd like to go in a slightly different way to try and answer your question, because uh, I, I am. What does it mean to be human? And it takes us back to this idea of creation and this under neglected idea, because as Christians, we so focus on redemption, 
But one of the challenges we have in addressing these things is we have detached redemption from creation. So we think that Jesus just cares about souls that are floating, doesn't actually care about our lives or anything like that. Um, and that then distorts w- w- the Christian life and how do we live it and how do we get shaped. So let me let me take us in a slightly different direction as a way of an actual practice or to think through this. And that's the idea of humility. Hmm. So Christians, when we when we encourage people to be humble... Normally, the answer is you should be humble because you're a sinner. Mm. And that means the way you become humble is by thinking more and more about your sin, which I think actually makes you feel worse and worse about yourself, which makes the 10 hours on the TV or playing games more attractive. Yep. And in the history of the church, this has been a problem. But actually, when you look biblically and theologically, the foundation for being humble is not that you're a sinner. It's that you're a creature. And by definition, as a creature, you're dependent upon God, you're dependent upon other people, and you're dependent upon the earth. That's just the good of how we were made. But I think one of the most profound things the church can do in our day is remind people they're creatures. And and so as you learn genuine dependence on God and other people in the earth, that humility grounds us in very... It, it slows us down. It makes us see other people. It makes us not take other people for granted. Whether, whether you're at the grocery store or you know feeding a kid or riding a bike, yeah. all of this is interconnected. And so actually, I think the church can foster humility in a, in a, in a view of creation that, that is very humane. And mm. even simple practices like encouraging one another seeing the good others have and bring and acknowledging that that is so countercultural, but I think it helps restore our humanity in some profound ways. I hope that made some sense as a, as a step. It makes forward. a lot of sense. I mean, where, where do you go at Alan and, and what part can the church play and, and where has it been responsible sometimes for continuing a narrative of, of, you know, success and competition? Yeah. Well, first let me say, the, that section of Kelly's book in particular, I was uh, absolutely loved. It was just fantastic. So uh, it's it, it's worth picking up, at, at least for the humility. Like, it, it's a great book, but that section, um, that is not something I had been uh, taught. And I and I, I do think I had been taught that when you, when you want to be humble, you think about your sin. Uh, I think that's what I had heard. And I think he's, he's right. That doesn't actually lead to uh, godly remorse, which leads to uh, repentance. It actually leads to a form of death that, that Paul talks about because it's despair. You figure, I can't get out of this. Um, so, you know, we've talked a, a little bit about what, how the church contributes to this already. Um, you know, when, um, when churches are spaces where where um, people are judged and evaluated by their achievements and pushed to be the best version of themselves, uh, we, we fundamentally don't look any different than uh, than than the world, and I think that's uh, very common. When when churches say, as uh, you know, part of the their advertisement, "Come see us," uh, so that you know you can live a, a more rich life, or you can um, you know you know have a a better family, or sort. Of, you know, there there are these material things, these these uh, efficiency things. They're saying, uh, "Become a Christian, and you can receive these benefits and get an upgraded life." In, in essence, an upgraded life. Um, and of course, you know, uh, 
in Christ, we do have a fullness, uh, and there are real benefits to our families, and, um, but there's also suffering and persecution and denying of self. I mean, I was talking to a student about this just yesterday. Here, the, the hard sell of Christianity, if you treat Christianity as a lifestyle, is you have to die to self. That's an awful pitch, right? Who, wh- why would you choose that as a lifestyle? <laughs> die to self, unless, unless, unless we're actually creatures. Unless we don't belong to ourselves, and then it makes sense, and then it makes sense. Um, so, now to answer your, you know, the the earlier question, which is, what can the churches do? Uh, I've been thinking a lot of, uh, in terms of, you know, churches as, as sort of outposts or spaces that can um, be uh, spaces of encouragement and pushback. Uh, my my diagnosis, you know, because I think these uh, this anthropology is so deeply embedded in our society, I don't think we can individually opt out of this. So often that's that's a very Western idea is that we, we identify a problem and then we say, OK, what are the three steps that I need to take to fix this? Right. Um, but if if it's if a lot of this has to do with external social forces, then you can't just change your mindset and now everything's fine. Um, but we, but we still have to act. And that's why, you know, I think what, what Kelly was saying about teaching, uh, us that reminding us that we are creatures is essential. Is that going to dramatically change? Is that going to pull all this existential pressure off of us? No, I, I, it's not, but, but we could be spaces where we recognize our creatureliness and we embrace it and we push back and it will make a meaningful difference. Um, and so I think that's what, that's what our job is. That's what we have to do. One of the pressures that we're kind of constantly cajoled into is, is what you identified at the beginning, Alan, this, this identity, you know, creation and preservation and curation, uh, that, that becomes very burdensome, uh, ultimately. Um, the, the quote that we often hear from the pulpit, and I think it's very well intentioned and true, is that, well, our, our ultimate identity should be in Christ. That's, that's the identity that should define us as Christians. How what how does that work in practice though? Because you don't want it to become just yet another sort of standard to which you're essentially not measuring up to and and feeling guilty about it and so on. So what what's a helpful way of understanding what it means to to have our identity in Christ as opposed to any other identity that we may or may not feel fits us? Yeah, I I think um, maybe talking in terms of identity before Christ is is, is more helpful uh, because. And I think we both talked about this in our, in, in our books. You know, when I heard in the church, find your identity in Christ, you know, I'm trying to think about, okay, what did, not what does that actually mean, but what did I experience that as? What did I interpret that as? And I think growing up in the church, what I, what I understood that to mean was that I should adopt a lifestyle that's similar to sort of middle class, very evangelical, uh, white people, which is what it is, right? So I listen to a certain kind of music and dress a certain kind of way and talk a certain kind of way. Um, and, and that's because I was trying to think because that's often what we're what we mean when we talk about identity is all these you know superficial things. And now I'm not saying that that's what the pastor meant to say because I don't think that's true. But uh, I do think that identity is such a complex and distorted concept in the modern world that if you just say to people, "Find your identity in Christ," I don't know that it's actually going to be. Uh, it's going to help them with that feeling of a liquid identity that they have. And so, what I would say is instead, um, recognize that you find your identity before God, 
before Christ, that, that you are always before God who knows you perfectly, who loves you, who can understand and see all the contradictions and complexities in your existence, in your history, in your thoughts. Um, you know, Kelly was talking earlier about that very common uh, contemporary idea that we need to look inward to find that identity. And, and he's absolutely right that, you know, I think anyone who's serious about looking inward recognizes that it's a black hole. Like you look inward and you're like, what is it? I don't, is that it? What did I, what did I just mm-hmm. find? And mm-hmm. you could just mm-hmm. keep going and going and going. So what ends up happening is actually we create things and we say they're internal, but we're, we're building. Um, well, if mm-hmm. I'm not doing that, if I'm not having to look out inward, instead I can accept that I am being perceived and recognized and sustained and, and preserved and loved by a God who knows me perfectly. That grounds my being in the world in a way that finding an identity in a modern sense just just won't. Mm. So that's that's mm. what I would mm. say. Yeah, can I just add on that? Because, so I'm a theologian. The answer is identity in Christ, right? Or, you know, life before Christ. That's right. But, and I think, Alan, and you were both kind of hinting to this. To be honest, that now is starting to grate on me when I hear it <laughs> spoken of. Because it is the flippant answer. Like, oh, you, you, you just need to find your identity in Christ. And the reason it frustrates me now this is my cynicism coming out is because it often comes from those of us including me who are in the majority culture who are part of norms but don't realize they're part of norms in majority culture so we actually have all kinds of identities (laughs) we've smuggled in and act like they're not identities and so we're like oh your problem is you don't have your identity in christ you're looking at your skin color you're looking at your political party which is crazy. Everybody is, right? Yep. And so I, I've had people say you need to people, have your identity in Christ, not in this political stuff. And I think your identity is as a, as a Republican in America, and you have no idea because everyone around you shares that identity, <laughs> but you don't think it's an identity marker. Yep. Now, I can get in trouble for saying this, but it's true. So it's, it actually, when you don't realize that, People struggle to understand why when I tell you to have your identity in Christ, why don't you get excited? Why doesn't that heal you? Because actually now they see the power structures that are and it actually pollutes a very good, important theological Mm. truth. So the reality is all of us need our identity in Christ and that relativizes everything else. But again, it shows we don't have a good view of creation. The reality is all of us, our bodies, our histories, our family origins, that all matters. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean I stop being those things. Sorry, I get animated about this because I see people hurt by it. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I'm concerned. What, what's the next? So sticking with you, Kelly, on that, what, if, if, if there's this wrong-headed way of, of, or at least people don't re- realize you know, that it's more complicated than just telling someone that and not even recognizing that you suffer from the same kind of identity situation as they do, what, how, how do we... Do we, do we need to rehabilitate this phrase? Do we need to, um, is there a better way of expressing it or, or what it means to be one who follows Christ or has their identity in Christ? Uh, and, and practically, what would that look like for someone who is struggling with identity and pressure and anxiety yeah. and everything else? It's a, it's a great question because um, sometimes really important ideas and words need to be refreshed. Or an, I, I remember in the early 2000s, uh, there was a time the word gospel was used so often uh, as, is this a gospel prayer? Is this a gospel? Da, 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 da. And I actually told my students, it, you're not allowed to use the word gospel. 
<laughs> for six months, which I know sounds terrible, but because it, it lost all meaning. Yeah. It was just a trump card that you didn't have to mm-hmm. think anymore, right? And I think identity in Christ is probably there. The reality is, biblically, identity in Christ is much more complicated and rich and beautiful than people. It means, yes, identity in, in as we are taken into the triune love of God, but but biblically, at the same time, that is identity in the body of Christ, his church. We don't tend to talk about that in terms of identity and obligations to that um, and, and these other kind of things. So I would encourage those of us who are leaders, who are speakers, who are preachers, who are leading studies, who talk about this to do some self-analysis and to think, what does this look like? And then um, I do think it, it provides an opportunity for us to think about what it means to be a human creature following after Christ. What are the basics that that looks like? Because Christianity is not asking people to become superhuman, just human. Mm -hmm. And identity in Christ is not asking you to leave your physicality and history and humanity. It's asking you to be fully appreciating the good gifts that God has given as you're reconciled to God in Christ and to one another. Alan, what what are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, I know that you guys. I'm loving the the overlap between all the thoughts here. I, I mean, do do you find that you know that that phrase has become problematic? And do, would you like to? I mean, what? How how do we make it real? You you've talked about identity before Christ or before God, and again, I think that relates to what you were saying earlier about we all need a witness of our identity, and people are usually looking for it. Right. on social media or through through the things that you know they achieve and so on for you there's something quite profound i think about simply being seen by god um and kind of not even having to perform but b- it's because you are known through and through that that somehow that 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 affirms your identity and the the good and the bad of it in that sense right so uh i'm thinking you know i'm i'm working with some ideas from charles taylor and and others the idea of expressive individualism and so under expressive individualism um, not only are we all seeking to figure out what our identity is to discover it inward or create it we always have to express it right that's that's uh, we have to and through expressing our identity we actually discover our identity and we can never stop expressing it um, now now part of that i think is just an inherent part of identity because identity requires a witness uh, there is no identity if there's only a singular being, right? Because there's no other to to identify. There's no question. There's only the one. But we live in a in a plural existence, right? So there are many people and to to have an identity means somebody has to be able to look at you and say, okay, you're Alan Noble. This is who you are. This is what you look like. This is your face. Um well when we understand that that a loving God sees us perfectly, um that that anxious, uh, inadequate, frantic effort to express our identity uh, becomes meaningless because we know that we don't actually need to express. There is a God who already who already knows us uh, perfectly, perfectly, all the good and all the bad. Um, and uh, that is, I think, um, you know, that that is, I think, beautiful. So, you know, pastorally, or you know, when I'm thinking about my students who are wrestling with these things, uh, sort of the two moves that I will make is one is uh, I will try to help them see how uh, their society has taught them to pursue a certain kind of identity, 
because once you can label, once you can see it and say, okay, that's, that's a choice. And as Kelly mentioned earlier, that's a modern choice. That's not a, historically, this is a new thing. Okay. So see that as a, as a modern construction. Okay. And then you're free to look at the alternative. So what if, um, my task in life is not to create some identity, but to honor God moment by moment, recognizing that I live before him moment by moment. Um, then our eyes shift off ourselves and, and we no longer have to look inward to the abyss really. Um, but we can look outward to serve others. And as Kelly was saying earlier, you know, that means we, we recognize our belonging to the church. How do you, how do you get, I mean, it sounds great in principle. My, my worry is, uh, like I said, we're, we're swimming against a sort of a tide where everything around us, maybe we hear something along these lines for an hour on a Sunday, but, but the rest of our culture is constantly shouting at us that basically we are our own, you know, and that we are supposed to transcend our human limitations at, at every given moment. Um, and I don't know, do you, do you think we're going to get to a point where people just are so burned out on that message that, that they have to kind of find a different way? And is that when the church, hopefully the message mm. can maybe reach? What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I, I do think we're finding people already are. They're just looking for something else. I mean, there's a reason why mindfulness techniques. I mean, we're not the only people, there are plenty of gurus saying, Hey, this is inhumane, slow down. And so, you know, but part of what's beautiful as Christians is we have this, this living God and his revelation that connects us to reality. So we, we have some hopeful things, but to be very concrete, one of the things I've, I would encourage people to do is the, is two practices and one is lament and one is gratitude. Because part of what that does as a Christian is lament allows you to be honest about what you see and experience in the world. Uh, Christians are constantly tempted to lie, either lie and pretend things aren't as bad as they are, or to lie and act like God isn't as good as he is. And we shouldn't lie about either. We should be brutally honest about the world and lament. And, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, O God? I mean, the Psalms are filled with lament. And then the flip side is gratitude, cultivating the practice of gratitude. And the interesting thing is lament and gratitude are both connected to finitude. They both ultimately are expressions of recognizing your dependence on God, others, and the earth. <laughs> and when, it's, when there's brokenness, when there's hurt, it is appropriate to lament, but even also and often at the same time, when you experience the good and see God's kindness, we give gratitude uh, for the little things, for the big things. Simple daily practices like lament and gratitude, I think, connect us back to our humanity and back to our God. Mm. So I do think there, there mm. are some genuine, none of these are fix-it things, right. but there are mm. practices in the life of the, of the church of, as the church as a whole and as individuals that can really help us, I think. And that, that would be too. I mean, that, that that's really helpful and i think that bringing out lament particularly because i think we've you know a lot of us have heard of you know things like yes we know gratitude is good and lots of the mindfulness is is around that i think what people often miss is is the kind of the accepting of our physical limits as well though and saying life you will grieve in this life you will feel awful and and to kind of embrace that and the fact that 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 is part of what god has given us as well um that that is the challenge isn't it because usually you know in the self-help books it, it's about as far as possible escaping any of those kind kinds of aspects of life 
but as as you know for work well, Ellie, you know when cancer hits or or chronic pain it can just be a part of life and and how do you how do you embrace that as as part of the god-given reality of 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 life that we live i suppose is is the great is the great puzzle um alan anything to add to 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 kelly's thoughts on that no i think that was beautifully said um i i I do think that 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 gratitude i said no and then i'm going to say something uh gratitude is (laughs) um uh so when we're grateful, it's not just that we're grateful for uh, the things that we have, but um, I think it's also you know the practice of being grateful for our finitude, right? So um, because sometimes what we'll do when we're grateful for things is there's a little bit of a resentment. I I I'm thankful that you did this for me, but I kind of wish I would done it for myself. I I, I kind of wish I'd, I that you didn't have to come and help me, right? Um, but but if we understand our creatureliness, as as Kelly does so well in his book, uh, and as the norm, as how we're supposed to live, then we are dependent upon each other and we are fundamentally dependent on God. And that's a good thing, right? So that's the key. That's a good thing. It's not Mm -hmm. actually, it would not actually be good for us to be radically autonomous. And so um, there are ways of being grateful that you'll often hear about, um, especially sort of, you know, gurus or mindfulness people or or, or in a secular uh, perspective, where you're just being grateful to the universe or to, to nothing. Right. Um, but then I, I do think that that our finitude are, are, uh, is is a problem. It's to be solved still. So as we're being grateful, I would I would just say that w- we should think about um, taking joy in our finitude. It's good. It's good that we can't do everything. And, and Kelly, to what extent did, is there, are there any other helpful pointers, concrete things that, that help us to accept the reality of our finitude um it's interesting because because everything you've said has been sparking a thought in me and and um I don't, I don't know if you guys agree with this but i did a show a month or two back on assisted dying what what's euphemistically called assisted dying now but euthanasia and and it strikes me that a lot of the reason why people want that option is because it, often what i've heard is at the point where i can no longer look after myself make my own decisions and essentially be an autonomous individual i don't think life will be worth living anymore at that point i don't want to be a burden on anyone else and, and so on and granted there's it's complex because we do live in with modern technology longer than perhaps our bodies you know were originally kind of designed to and everything else but even so it strikes me that there's a kind of this this idea of of our, our personal autonomy and uh you know that that once we don't have that and and once you know our bodies are effectively working against us rather than for our autonomy that we then need to that's the point at which to say goodbye to them it, it strikes me that's all woven in at some level kelly would would you say yeah um i i think the myth of autonomy and independence is just killing us <laughs> it's and it's so it is in the church almost as strongly as it is in the world and we just don't know how much it affects us and then you have cases like that where it becomes more clear mm-hmm. but the reality is all of us are buying in yep. all of us have kind of bought into this this idea so in terms of concrete practices you know kind of the last chapter i have a a bunch that i would i mean i don't know if people would call them concrete but there are things I would encourage us to think about. One is like vulnerability. It's very interesting to me that Brene Brown gave a TED talk on vulnerability and, you know, 
it's been watched over 50 million times. And it's the power of vulnerability, right? Well, that's just what Christians call being a creature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just recognizing, yes, you're vulnerable, right? I don't, it's not about being fragile, you know, treating your children like they're fragile, but it is the reality. We are all actually vulnerable. We're all dependent. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book on creation has this great treatment of the idea of dependence is not part of the fall. It's part of the good. The, the, what does, what sin does is twist our dependence on one another. So now I want to win. Now I want to either have dominance over you or ignore you because I can't, you know, but, but mutual dependence is part of the good. So I do think that there are things we can do. I think part of it is like rhythm, embracing the rhythms of life. One of my personal problems is on a Monday, I come and I write my list of to-dos for the day, for the week. And the reality, most Mondays, my list is is what I should do in a week, but I put it on a day, so I feel guilty all the time, right? <laughs> and that is my failure to appreciate my full humanity. What does it look like? So I do think, um, and even at a, at a larger scale, understanding the rhythms of life, when you have a newborn, what you should think about getting done in a day is different than when you have adult children. There are just some of these simple ideas that even as a church, we should be encouraging our people to appreciate. Uh, and that would that actually can lessen the guilt. Um, I really do think we need to stop feeling guilty for not doing everything and, and start asking God's forgiveness for imagining we ever could. Mm. And so there are simple practices like recognizing vulnerability in healthy ways, having rhythm. I, I, and I'll stop here in a second. I think rest, I think of sleep as a spiritual discipline. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, turning 50 this year, and it's one of those things where sleep is not easy for me. I wake up at three in the morning with all the anxieties of the world. and all, But I've really grown to think of sleep as, as a very theological, spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Sabbath rest or just, you know, the rhythm of one in seven. Some of these things... This is not about legalistic debates anymore. This is when you talk to about Sabbath or arrest of people who don't know these things. It's like, no, that can't be. You mean I, I don't have to work for a day? <laughs> you say that to students and they think that's not true. If I don't study for a day, I am morally failing. Yeah. And that's a great yeah. sign of how off we are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who, who was it who said something like many of the world's problems would be eradicated if a person could learn to sit by themselves in a in a room with their yes. own thoughts for yeah. more than now i i can't remember i think it may have been pascal but i can't i can't that's, yes i think it was i think yeah. it was pascal yes um look, we'll, we'll go to another quick break and we'll be back uh, with some final thoughts uh, we're talking about how humans live in an inhuman world we'll be back shortly So we've been talking about how should humans live in an inhuman world. Um, I do encourage you to go and check out the books by my guests today. I've enjoyed them both immensely. They've been really thought provoking and and several times reading each of them, I've stopped and and I thought, oh, gosh, this this just describes so much of what's going on around me or my life in particular. Um, Alan's book is You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. It's out now. Kelly Capick, very shortly to be released, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. You can pre-order it now. There are links to both of them from today's show. So do do please go and check those out. 
Yeah, uh, coming back to you, Alan. Um, any further thoughts on this this idea of vulnerability and and you know what we, yeah, just just what it means to live within our limitations. And so so, so I, was, I was thinking about uh, the what, what did you was it physician assisted suicide? What, what's the euphemism? Yeah, yeah. The, well, here they're calling it um, assisted dying. Assisted dying. Is, is okay, the, the there you go. Yeah, that right. does, that makes sense. Um, you know, I've I've heard. And, you know, people that I'm uh, fairly close to who are a little bit older say to me, um, I don't want to be in a home. I uh, I, I do want to, uh, you know, I want to go when I don't have agency over my body. And as we're thinking through, you know, that that reminded me of what, what Kelly said earlier about Tertullian. Right. And this this idea of these Gnostics who are just afraid of their bodies. And, you know, Kelly's point was. Uh, okay, on the surface, we say we love our bodies, we embrace our bodies, but we're actually not. We're uncomfortable with them. And a sign of this, I think, and it's related to this question of, you know, assisted dying, assisted suicide, is um, <sighs> cleaning up after each other is one of the practices that we can do that reminds us of our creatureliness, that reminds us of our, that humbles us, that reminds us that we are fundamentally dependent upon each other. Right. And it, parents know this, like when you have to clean up after a kid, whether it's vomit or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 it humanizes you. Um, and if if the church, when I think about practices, because you, Justin, you've been asking very rightly about, OK, what what exactly can we do? Well, what if the church was known as a place where we took care of our own? Right. So our families and the people within the church, um, when we're when we're suffering, when we're going through hardships, we literally clean up after each other because it's one of the most human things that we can do. And it's a recognition that we are not autonomous um, and that we do need each other. Um, and that'll make people uncomfortable. I mean, it on both sides, right? The people receiving that help, it makes them uncomfortable. The, the people cleaning up. Uh, yesterday, my, my uh, wife and kids were coming home from school and my youngest uh, threw up in the car. She got car sick. And uh, the, the oldest did not react very well to this. She was sitting next to her and was kind of mad at her sister for because she was stuck in the car with this smelling, right? And so my wife said, well, you need to help clean this up. And it was very hard for my daughter, my oldest daughter, very, very, very hard for her to clean up. She was just disgusted by it. And what I had to say to her is, this is one of the most human things you're ever going to do, is clean up the mess after other people. Um, because it has to do with our bodies, and it has to do with our dependence. And so uh, it just struck me that, you know, that ties a lot of these, 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 themes, these themes together. Yeah. Thank you. Ke Kelly, um, yeah, what, 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 do, what do you want to say as we start to draw today's program to a close? Yeah, I think one other thing I'd like to mention is I've really been struck by the importance of process, again, for creatures. Um, so the Genesis narrative, it, it's fascinating. Whether you take God creating the world in seven days as a literal seven 24-hour days or seven trillion years, it's actually irrelevant to this point. Even if you have this very conservative view of you know six 24-hour days, God, who could have made it in a millisecond or faster, took his time. Mm. He took days, however long that is. So that is actually very interesting that God likes to take his time. And in the Genesis narrative, he takes his time creating and organizing by his spirit. So when we connect creation to redemption, that means in our Christian lives, we're often so frustrated because of our ongoing wrestling with sin, mm. weaknesses and failures in our lives. And often we just feel like the father's upset with us, disappointed with us, just like, I can't believe, you know, 
Rather than, no, this is the God who is very comfortable with process. He loves to take his time, and he's committed that he began a good work, he's going to carry it to completion. And so part of being a human creature is, yes, using your agency, fighting sin, being engaged, but also not despairing, because God's Spirit is working, and the Spirit of creation who slowly brought this about is also working in our lives. And that's a very human thing. Um, it It is not about instantly being free from struggle. Um, you know, sin is a problem. We should resist it. But we should also have a longer view, which the creator God does. Mm. Mm. I mean, what kind of hope do you both hold? You, you're both seeing this at the sharp end with the students that you both engage with academically and pastorally. Um, we're all aware that, you know, technology only moves forward um, and potentially has, you know, we already can see the dehumanizing effects it, it can have on us um, as it as it breaks apart those, you know, natural physical relationships and so on that, that we've, you know, prospered under for, for thousands of years. So, I mean, what do you think that we will reach a point where we stop allowing technology to potentially dictate what it means to be human and, and you know, it become it takes its proper place as as the servant rather than the master of of humanity do do you have hope that we will i don't know grow up <laughs> i mean it's, it's almost it's almost like for me that the technology has outpaced our ability you know our our brain capacity or or our, our you know our, our own sort of if you like human design or evolution or whatever you want to call it, it it's as though we we it, it's gone further ahead of us and and ha- wreaking all these these consequences do we do either of you have hope that that we can turn the tide, as it were, on on this uh, kind of way in which culture seems to be heading at the moment? Yeah, so uh, I do. I, I believe that that Christ is redeeming all things, and that Christ can save this city. Um, but I don't have hope that I uh, have a plan, or can see, or can visualize how what you just described will happen. I don't. I can't. I have no clue. I have no expectation um, that that I can bring that about. Um, but what I do know is that I have a responsibility to act rightly before God moment by moment. And that means that I can't just throw up my hands and be like, well, technology is going to determine our future. There's no way to stop it. There's no way to, to push back against efficiency and say there are things that are more important like love. Kelly points this out in his book, love, uh, love God and neighbor and, and creation. Um, I'd have to just give in. That's not an option for Christians. So I think we live in this interesting space where we don't have a plan that's going to save society. That's I don't think anyone who tells you they do uh, is probably in a cult or it wants to sell you something. We don't. We don't have a plan. Or, or Elon Musk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Or as a delusional billionaire, right? Um, you know, uh, money will do that to you is you think you can do anything. And but But instead – What's interesting is that we don't get to despair. We don't get to just say, well, because we can't see a way out, we're stuck. We have to give up. No, no. Uh, We have to say, because our hope is in God, today I will choose to use technology in a way that is loving to him and is honorable. Um, And as Kelly said, this is a process. None of us, because we are born into this society, none of us is doing this completely right or even close to it. But but if we try, if we work and and if we – I think especially in local churches, if we work together to try to take steps, I think we can have pockets of of resistance. And that will be meaningful. And Mm -hmm. the world, as they get fatigued by all of these things, which we have seen, and 
the church, as it gets fatigued by all of these things, will see those those spaces of resistance and think that's where I need. That's where because I do need comfort. I need comfort. Yeah, I'd love to add to that. So college students are great examples where they take all these hits and everyone, you know, Alan does a great job of kind of trying to defend them like, hey, stop with the cheap shots, right? And I'm I'm similar where in some ways they're totally into the technological abuses or whatever, but they're also victims of it. Mm. And many of our students are the first that have grown up. iPhone came out in 2008, I think it was. These guys have now never known not having yeah. that in their world. But I find I'm a Gen Xer, grew up in California. We all like if you would stay and live in your hometown for your whole life and have a job and that that was like you're a failure. Yep. Part of what I love, I'm learning a lot from my students. They see the bankruptcy of it all hmm. and they're they're interested in what kind of job can I do? They're interested in put it this way. I want to live with these people. Hmm. That rather than this job, so that mm -hmm. the people takes priority over over the job. That's mind blowing to someone from yeah. my world, yep. and um, mm -hmm. I think that as having lived downstream from so many of the consequences, these students, I think, have some countercultural instincts and can help us. So rather than those of us who are older making fun of them, I think we're going to often look to them as a path forward because they've lived through it and they feel the shallowness. Um, they know how they feel after 12 hours of video games. I know a lot of students who say, I will never let my kids have technology until they're 18, <laughs> even though they wanted to kill their parents when, you know, they tried to restrict them. So anyways, all that to say, I'm not, it's, it's way too overwhelming. I'm not naive. I, I have biblical realism, but I, they make me hopeful that the church at least yeah. has mm. something in it to be countercultural. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, it's it's just it's just been really helpful uh, for me speaking to you both, and and as I say, the books really helpfully, I think, encourage people to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on in culture, and 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 then dive into some of the possible ways in which we can we can make a difference. But thank you so much, Kelly and Alan, for being with me on the show today. Again, if you want access to uh, the books, I highly recommend them. Um, then there are links from today's show. But for now, thanks for being with me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that discussion. Please let us know what you thought. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week for another unbelievable classic replay.